joy to hear you guys sing that. You guys go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, open up your Bibles with me to Malachi, the last verse of chapter 2, verse 17. Guys, in our, our fallen world that we live in, questions of injustice are never, they're never far from us. They're never far from our minds. Why is life not fair? Why does evil prosper? Why do bad things happen to good people? These are questions that have come up for as long as we have been asking questions. And while they've always been present, I think they're even heightened in our day. Whereas people have always had to deal with these things in their personal lives, in their, you know, their towns, in their churches, right? We live in the information age, right? And we get the flood of evil and injustice, not just the things that we touch personally, but around the world. And I think it causes these questions to loom even larger for us. It can be overwhelming at times. Just the amount of things that morally do not add up. And it's so big and it's so complex that this, this moral math equation of our world seems to have so many variables that, that true answers, true explanations, making sense of it seems like a fool's errand. It seems like it's impossible. But the good news is that God is not surprised by these questions. And he's not silent on them either. He does not desire that we would be confused by what we see going on in the world and by the pain in our own lives and the injustices that we see. He wants us to understand them rightly because when we do, there's actually incredible hope in the midst of them, even in the bleakest and darkest of them. So as we continue in Malachi today, we're going to see that Judah, they've come back from exile, but their life is not good, right? From a human perspective, their circumstances are not great. They're poor, they're oppressed, they have overlords, things are not well. And of course, these questions have started to come. They are wrestling with these very same questions that we all have. And we're going to see that they have gotten the moral math equation very, very wrong. And God is going to step in and correct it for them and for us. So let's read together, starting in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in, in former years. 
Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker for his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And um, the word that you have for us here is particularly needful. Sometimes we, we know your word is valuable, but we, it's hard to draw the lines and the connections to why we need it. There, there's no trouble with that here. This is something every single one of us deals with. We have all suffered under injustice. We have all seen the moral inequity of our world, and it has been hard to make sense of and difficult to understand and difficult to find hope in. And so we thank you that you, the one who created this world, who designed it, who knows all things, have not left us in that confusion, but have revealed what you're doing in the midst of that and what it means, and have given us great hope in its midst. We pray that you would work that in the hearts of your people this morning, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so Israel, in these very difficult circumstances they find themselves in, they are looking around at these circumstances, and they are looking for justice. They are looking to try to make sense of what is going on in the world. And what they see leads them to two troubling conclusions about God. That's where we're going to start. The first conclusion is that they say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. They look around, and the conclusion they draw from what they see out on the map and what they see going on in life is that God must love wicked people. He must find joy in them because their circumstances are so good. To put it bluntly, this statement is blasphemous. Flat out blasphemous. It assaults the holiness and righteousness and goodness of God. It says that God is something that he is not. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. He takes no delight in wickedness ever in any kind. In fact, he cannot delight in wickedness. For him to do that would make him something other than who he is. So this statement is false on its face and an incredible offense to God. But we need to see... What's going on underneath the surface that would lead you to make that kind of statement? Because there's a a turn underneath. There's something that has to happen in you to be able to say something like this. And we may not say these words, right? We may have been around church enough to know that you don't say this. But we can have the same turn in our heart that might lead us to see God in this way in more subtle ways, right? And to doubt who he is and to compromise our view of him. And what's going on here is that they... Judah's play-acting a role reversal right now. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay a long time ago called God in the Dock. And the dock is what, in Britain, they call the place where the defendant sits. And the whole idea of the essay is that what modern man has done is that they have put God in the defendant's box, and they have set themselves on the judge's seat, right? Which is the reverse of what it should be. God is now on trial, right? We look out... And we decide, somehow, conjure up some standard of this is right. And now we sit on our judging throne and decide whether or not God lines up with that standard and lives up to it. 
if he can be called just. This is a blatant falsehood and an illusion. That is not justice. God is justice. You cannot make this move. Without God, there is no justice. He is not, he cannot be measured by any standard. He is the standard. If there is going to be any justice, it is because it reflects him. Justice is defined by who he is, his character, and what he has called us to. That is the definition of justice. So we cannot look out somewhere and create some other thing, call it justice, and then decide God is unjust because we've created something new and put his word on it. God is justice. Justice is God. It is one of his perfections. He cannot be separated from it, held outside of it, held up to it, measured by it in any way. It reflects and aligns with him perfectly. Something is just in as much as it conforms to his character and his will. That is, that is what justice is. That is the definition. And so if he... So what happens, though, when we make that switch, right? When we decide that God isn't the standard of justice, right? That we're going to go somewhere else for it. Well, there's really only one... There's only two places you can get your standard, right? Either God is the standard... Or who is? You. You. It's either God or you. There aren't really other options. It might be a you plural. You might pick it up from some other people. But it is either God or man. That's the only place the standard can go. A few, several years ago now, I was engaging with a, a friend who claimed to be an atheist. And we were talking about the gospel and just kind of working through things. And um, they had a lot of objections of who God reveals himself to be in scripture, why, why he, the way he called certain things right and certain things wrong, the whole idea of why God was, as he's revealed in scripture, was not, uh, was not how God would be, how God should be. And that's ultimately where they landed, right? They said, if there, if there is a God, he wouldn't be like this. And I told them, like, well, I hate to break it to you, but you're not an atheist. You think you are, but you're not. You, you have a God. It's you. It's you. You, you are God. You have a God. It's, it's, it's you. You can stand up and decide what God is. That, that's the definition of divinity. You have enthroned yourself in that place. And this is, the, this is what we do by nature. This is what happens in our world. This is the problem with so many of the, the justice movements in our world, right? It's not the impulse. It's not the, the impulse that sees injustice and thinks it's bad. Our world is unjust. There's all kinds of things to be upset about in terms of the way our world are func it functions. We should be the first ones in line to say that. It fits with our theology. This world is cursed. People are depraved. We shouldn't be surprised at all when there's injustice of all kinds. We should be the first ones to say, yep. Yeah. That's not the problem with those movements. The problem is that they almost all redefine justice into something that it's not. You know, some of the prominent ones, these are things I've talked to you guys about before. Expressive individualism. I've mentioned this before. This is a part of the ethos of our culture, right? That what is truly good is to 
bring out your impulses, your feelings, and to express them and to have everybody celebrate them. That is true good. That is, that is what is moral, right? Is to express your impulses, your urges, your feelings, and to have those celebrated. That is good. And that's a definition of justice, right? That's a moral definition of what is right, what is good to pursue, and by turn, what is wrong. Other things that get used to define this, things like intersectionality, and critical theory, the problem with all of these things is that they find their source of moral authority not in God, but in some other human construct, right? Some combination of different identities that you hold gives you moral authority. Some, the, the fact that you have been victimized gives you moral authority. Scripture does not say moral authority comes from those places, right? It's not that those things don't matter and that you haven't had experience because of some of those things, But that does not give moral authority. Moral authority rests in God. And moral authority comes from the degree to which something reflects him, his character, and his will. The ground for moral authority doesn't come from our feelings, our desires, our sexuality, our ethnicity, our sociopolitical status. None of those things put you on moral high ground. They don't. God alone sits on the moral high ground. Full stop. None of these things determine what justice is. So that's the first problem, right? Because Judah made this exact move, right? They came up with their own standard, right? This is what justice looks like. We should be doing better. Look out, we're not doing better. Those guys are doing better. So that means God's unjust, right? He hates evil. I mean, he loves evil and hates good. They've done this exact move. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun, guys. They didn't have these fancy terms that we have now. It's the same exact move. That sinful DNA is still with us, and the strain is strong. Well, that brings us to the second question. And the second question is, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? So maybe we get corrected on the first thing, right? And we're like, okay. God doesn't love evil. He doesn't hate good. Like, that's maybe a bridge too far. I'll walk that back. But it still leaves the open question of, well, where is this just God in light of everything that's going on around here? Right? If God is just, why is everything such a train wreck? Right? Personally, like, I've been hurt and wronged by people. I see it happen to my friends. I see it happen to people in my church. I see... Things completely inverted and crazy in society. How does a God of justice fit into that equation? Where is he? If he is just, why is it like this? Right, again, we are the first ones. We should be the first ones to acknowledge that injustice is there. But what does that mean about God? What does the presence of injustice tell us about him? And what Judah has decided is that it tells them that God's either not present or he's indifferent. He may not actively love evil, but he's not too concerned to actually do anything about it. He's he's too busy to be troubled. He's indifferent. He doesn't care. He's not bothered by it. Is that what this means? Is that what the presence of evil and injustice in the world means about our God? And God's answer can be summarized in two little words. And the rest of the passages is answering this, but it really boils down to this. They ask, where is God? 
Where's the God of justice? He says, I'm coming. I'm coming. That's his answer. And everything that he is going to say to us that explains what's going on in our world, explains why we have hope in the midst of it, is wrapped up in that. I am coming. He is not far off. He's not absent. He's not uninterested. He's coming. Look again at verses, starting in verse 3-1. God speaks after Judah lays out their accusations, and he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's a few things going on here. These next few verses are like jam-packed with stuff. It's really neat, as we're going to see it unfold. When he first says, this, my messenger, right? This is actually Malachi. Not the prophet, but that's the word here, right? The title of our book, it's here. It's my messenger. And the idea of a messenger in this context, a messenger back in this day would go before the king. The king's going to a city, right? And they would send a messenger beforehand, and his job is to prepare, prepare for the king's arrival. So this involved making all the arrangements, taking care of security, everything, making sure everybody knew so there'd be a good showing and the king felt rightly celebrated, all the stuff, even down to going over the path and making sure there were no, nothing his horse would trip on, making sure it was smooth and clear, everything to get ready for the king. And so that was the messenger's job. But what does that signal to the people? Like, you see all this happening, all, like, the king's coming, right? This doesn't happen unless the king's about to show up. So this passage is referencing John the Baptist. My messenger here is John the Baptist. And Jesus explicitly says this in Matthew eleven nine. 9. He quotes this to talk about who John is. He says this. He says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Right? Quotes the verse. Actually, he doesn't quite quote it. If you pay attention, he actually changed it a little bit, right? He put it in the second person, right? He put it in the way that he heard this in heaven. It's like God, the Father, speaking to him. I am sending my messenger ahead of you. Where the original was, I send my messenger and he will pray the, prepare the way before me. There's a whole bunch wrapped up in here. We see the Trinity, right? We see Yahweh, I'm sending my messenger before me. And now we see the Son is Yahweh, right? So we see Trinity here. And we also see this, this is just... It's a really neat little thing, this little clue that Jesus gives us. And it, make, it really enriches this passage, right? So this is talking about John the Baptist, right? So he's coming to prepare the way. He's signaling that the king is coming, this God of justice that they think is absence. He's coming, and that's what John's there to signal. But then we see that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. That word suddenly connotes being surprised, right? So despite all this preparation, they're not going to really recognize it. Right? They're, they're, all the preparation is going to happen, but they're not going to read the signals. They're not going to understand what's happening in their midst. And where is he going to appear suddenly? In the temple. Right? The temple was the place of God's presence with his people. And I think particularly this prophecy is talking about when Jesus comes, goes to the temple after the triumphal entry. Right? This just it fits so beautifully. Right? What happens in the triumphal entry? Right? What are the people doing? They're clearing the path. They're making the path. They're laying down their cloaks and their palm branches. They're making this way for the king to come into the city, right? And they're thinking, 
okay, the Messiah is here. He's going to kick out Rome. Things are about to get good. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't go to get rid of Rome. He goes to the temple. And what does he do? He clears out the temple. The temple's become this breeding ground for corruption where the worship of God has been turned into a trade, where worshipers are being extorted and used for money. Right? This is injustice. And Jesus goes and he cleanses it. He gets rid of it. Didn't come to kick out Rome. He came to cleanse the place of his people's worship. We read this uh, here in, in Matthew. Um, says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them, right? More of the brokenness of this world being reversed, changed by the work of Jesus. In short, he brought justice, right? But he didn't bring complete justice, right? He did, cleaned out the temple. He did this justice in this way, but he This isn't full justice, right? He didn't fix the world. This this cleansing is prophetic, right? He's pointing forward to a greater justice that is to come, a justice that will be all-encompassing. And we get pointed to this in verse 5 of our passage. There we read, And I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Because in that verse, there's a list of seven things. Seven's an important number, right? Seven is a number that marks completion. If you wanted to use a set to represent a totality, you use seven. Like, that's what it's meant for. And this gets captured even more with the last thing that he talks about judging is those who don't fear the Lord. This is a blanket category for all sin. All sin at its root is a lack of fear of the Lord. So what Jesus is saying, he's talking about total justice here. Everything that does not align, not to your made-up standard of justice, but to God's perfect standard of justice, is going to be judged. So this is a direct answer to Israel's problem. Like, where's the God of justice? Like, I'm coming, and justice is coming with me. Total, complete, full justice. And this leads us to the question of the heart of the matter. It comes to us in verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Judah made a mistake that we make a lot of times when we talk about justice and injustice. Usually when we cry out for justice and we want justice, we do it because we think we are on the right side of it. Right? Guilty people don't ask for justice very often. Right? Guilty people don't ask for justice. Guilty people want mercy. They want grace. They want stuff like that. They don't want justice. Judah, when they're saying these, when they're lodging these things with God, they think that they are righteous. They think that they come down on the right side of history, the right side of justice. But what have we seen in Malachi so far? Are they righteous? No. They're not even close. They don't believe God loves them. They worship him like pagans. They treat each other horrendously. They're eons away from being righteous. And we are not different than them. We are not different than them. 
There is not a single person here who can call for justice by God's standard and sit comfortably knowing that that will fall outside of them. In fact, you can know for certain that it does not fall outside of you. You are not in and of yourself on the side of the just. Every single one of us is unjust. And that is a huge fundamental thing we have to understand when we are talking about issues of justice and injustice. We don't do it from the moral high ground. God is the only one who has the moral high ground. And we have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. We do this. We might long for justice, but we long for justice as people who do injustice all the time. In little ways and big ways. We are not good. We are not good. And so when Judah is saying this, he's saying, where's the God of justice? Asking God to come do justice? They are fools. They have no idea what they're asking for. They have no idea what that actually means for them at this point. But the beauty of this passage is that the God of justice doesn't come once here. There's two comings of the God of justice here. And that changes everything. If there's a straight line between injustice, sin, or evil, and justice being done, we're all screwed. There's no reason to be here. We don't have any hope. We might as well just be done with this. There's no hope for any person if there's a straight line between our performance, our efforts, and God's judgment. The only thing it can merit is the wrath of a perfect and holy God. That's it. But that straight line between what we do, our evil, our injustice, is interrupted. It's interrupted by the first coming of Christ. And we're going to talk about these two comings because this is so important to understand the world we live in and understand what's going on around us. There's oftentimes in Scripture, especially in prophetic literature, Timelines are kind of flattened out. Uh, God is much more concerned with telling us who's, who's happening, what's happening, what's going on, than he is about giving us a timeline. He's very, very much tells us, don't look for that. I don't do that. So a lot of times we'll have prophecies where there are aspects of it that are separated by not moments, but years, dozens of years, hundreds of years even. And that's what we have here. We've got three different things that are being prophesied. We've got John the Baptist. We've got Jesus once, and we've got Jesus again. And if we don't kind of see those demarcation marks, we'll get really confused about what's going on here. And we won't read it right at all. And so the first thing when we look at Jesus' comings is that both times Jesus comes to deal with injustice, but he does it in very different ways both times. The first coming of Jesus, Jesus comes as a justifier. As a justifier. That's how he deals with injustice the first coming. This is what it says. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. This is the part that refers to Jesus' first coming the one that we now look back on and that we have much more fully explained and expounded to us in the New Testament. But here we have Jesus' work as he comes described in two pictures. 
described as the work of a refiner and the work of a fuller. A refiner is one who purifies metal. Right? When you get metal, precious metal, out of the ground, it doesn't look like what your ring is made out of. Right? It's full of all kinds of impurities and things that compromise it. And a refiner's job is to do away with all of those. Refining the metal means eliminating everything that is impure from it so that all that is good is left and all that is bad is gone. A fuller does laundry. That's what a fuller is. It's a laundry person, right? And the fuller takes soiled garments, garments that are filthy and dirty, and with his soap, with his lye, he takes these corrupted, polluted garments and he makes them clean again. He gets rid of all the stain, all the dirt, all the stench. And makes it clean. They both get rid of impurities. They take something that is corrupted. Something that is flawed. And they make it perfect. This is what we need. right? If we understand that we are not on the right side of history. If we understand that we do injustice all the time. That we are evil We don't need justice yet. We have to be pure, right? We have to be able to hold up to justice. Who will be able to stand? Not us, not as we are. Something has to change in us for us to be able to call for justice and look forward to justice as a good thing. It is not a good thing for us while we're guilty. And the picture here is that that's what Jesus' work is at his first coming. It's to take evil, unjust sinners and to make them clean to take out what is corrupted from them and leave them as pure gold. Right? This is why there are two comings. The way Jesus deals with injustice in his first coming is he gets rid of it in us. He makes it so that the wrath of God for sinners doesn't have to fall on us. And he does that cleansing work, that refining work. How does he do it? He did it by taking justice on himself. That's how he refines us. That's how he makes us pure, right? It's not something outside of himself. No, he bore all the wrath that your injustice deserves and he drank it to the dregs, every last drop on Calvary. And only after living a life of perfect obedience, a life of perfect justice that you can never come close to, he drained the cup of God's wrath so that there is none left for you. And he clothes you in his perfection. He took your corruption, your impurities, your dirt, your stink on himself to Calvary and absorbed everything it deserves so that you might be clean, so that you might be pure. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. Jesus' first coming was not about bringing total and complete justice. It was about justifying the unrighteous. So that that perfect justice, when it does come, would not devastate them, would not destroy them. Right? And that gets described here in, when he talks about Levi. The end state of this is that Levi, God's priests, 
Who are we as the church? We're a kingdom of priests. Right? Levi represents us here. God's priests, who've been, they've been rebuked throughout the book, right? They've been the main subject that God has been hammering on for their unrighteousness. What do we see that happens here? They are purified. They are again made pleasing to the Lord. They are able to offer good, clean worship again because of the work of this refiner, of this purifier. Church, we sit here today and hear the word of God, not as a word of judgment, but a word of grace and mercy because of this work. Our worship, we can sing those songs and come to God and say these things about him and not get rejected out of hand because of this work. We are not accepted because of anything you did this week or any commitments you made for next week. You're accepted because it goes through the mediatorial work of Jesus. And that's it. That's it. And you got to see the kindness and goodness. He had no obligation to do this, guys. He would have been totally right to take the straight line from our sin, our wickedness, our evil, and take it straight to judgment. We saw this. It's called Noah, right? Noah's Ark is no cute kid's story, right? Sin happened, judgment fell. Everybody's dead. That's what this looks like. And he had every right to do that with us. He would still be exactly who he is. He would be perfectly just, righteous, would not compromise anything in his character. But he is a God who loves mercy, and he rejoices in grace, in kindness. That's why Malachi describes Jesus here as the messenger of the covenant. Right? He's talking about the new covenant. The old covenant was a covenant of works. Right? It was perform and then you will be blessed in the land. Right? Go back even further with Adam. It was perform and live, fail and die. Covenant of works. This new covenant, the covenant that Jesus brings, is a covenant of grace. It's a covenant that says, I will perform for you and then give you everything I win. He's the messenger of that covenant. He gives what he takes all that we deserve and gives all that he deserves as a gift of no strings attached grace. So, guys, these two comments so important. The first coming was not about bringing ultimate justice, but in making justifying the unrighteous. The answer to who can stand is absolutely nobody except for Christ. So the only people who stand are those who are in him, united to him by faith. That's it. That is the only way to stand before true justice. Now, church, this should very much affect the way we see injustice in the world. Now, it shouldn't make us indifferent to it, but it should radically change what it means to us, right? It shouldn't bring up the same question that Judah asked. Where's the God of justice if there's all this evil going on? Right? And that tends to be our first impulse. Why isn't there justice here? But if we realize that we were not just, and if justice were to come, it would devastate us, this equation starts to change, right? The fact that God has not worked total justice now is not a difference, right? You think about the evil you hate. Right? There's some pretty nasty stuff in our world, right? I've got, you know, and we... There's lots of sin that we are kind of okay with, but then there's these things that just literally curdle our blood, right? Think about the most abhorrent thing that we see happen in our world, right? You think you hate that. God hates the tiniest, slightest little sin 
with a greater intensity and a greater purity than you hate the grossest thing you've ever seen or heard of. Because he's holy and you're not. So whatever is going on out there, it is not God's indifference. It is not that he's fine with evil going on. That is not the answer. Right, but we can't confuse God's forbearance and patience with indifference. That's what's going on right now. It is not indifference. It is not ignorance. It is patience and forbearance for the sake of mercy and grace. Scripture is explicit about this. And one of the best places is 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3. Uh, and this is written to the church that is suffering. They are suffering under persecution. This is written around the time of Nero, who was not a good guy for the church. Right? And they're wondering, right? Like, we are on Jesus' side. Where's this victory we were expecting? Why are things going the way that they are? And Peter writes this to them. 2 Peter 3.8 Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. Hence the timeline thing, right? He doesn't always give us the timelines we want to know. But but listen to this, guys. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. Right? This is where Judah's at, right? God says he's just, but he's not doing it. But Peter says, no, that's not what's going on. He says instead, but he's patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's what's going on. Right there, injustice exists in the world because God is still showing grace and mercy and still saving sinners. That is why there is injustice in the world. Because he is still taking the unjust, the evil, and he is still purifying them and making them his and bringing them into Christ so that wrath won't fall on them. All right, so when we see injustice, we are right to hate it. We are right to want things to be different. But we have to hold on to this, right? The fact that God, in his holiness, allows this place to endure with all of that. All right? It is because of his great compassion, his great mercy, that he forbears and lets that continue in order to save and show his great mercy in Christ Jesus. It also means that. It's not good. We should hate it. But don't hate it without that part. Right? God delays perfect justice for mercy's sake. But he has not forgotten justice. Right? This forbearance, this patience is not an indefinite thing. At the beginning of this passage, Malachi writes that Judah is wearying God with his word. Right? And Scripture communicates just about God with figurative language, right? To help us understand things about God. God doesn't get tired. He's never been tired. He can't get tired, right? But what happens when we get tired, right? What happens to our patience when we get tired? It gets less, right? It shrinks. That fuse gets really short as we get tired, right? And so what God, in part, is communicating to them is like, do not take this patience for granted, Don't treat this as some indefinite period that goes on forever. This time of grace, this time of mercy, the day of salvation, as Scripture comes up sometimes, is a limited thing. 
It is not open forever. It is a time that God works in this way. And then there is going to be a shift. Right? At his second coming, there is going to be a very different way of bringing justice. Second Peter captures this as well. If we continue on past verse 9, I'll start back there. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's the second coming. The second coming is when perfect justice comes. Because at his second coming, there is no more patience. There is no more forbearance. There is going to be a new creation where all unrighteousness is stripped away. All impurity is stripped away. There will be no toleration and delay anymore. That's what the second coming Means The second coming will not be about Jesus coming to absorb the wrath of God. It's going to be Jesus coming to mete out the wrath of God for sin. And that's what we get again in verse 5 of our passage. Then I will draw near. So this is the second coming. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. We already talked about this, right? This is a representative sample, just all different types of sin, saying that justice is going to be meted out on sin. This is so important to know as somebody who lives in a world of injustice and suffers injustice. The first thing really talks about the reality of us doing injustice. This talks to the reality Where's the hope for us when we suffer it? Right? When we suffer in a broken world, we are treated badly and there is no seeming justice for it. When the world goes crazy and it seems like they thrive and prosper, right? This is what the second coming is about. And the first coming allows the second coming to be a source of our hope too. Everything will be exposed. Everything will receive what it deserves. There is nothing that God has missed. There is no injustice that you have suffered that he is not taken into account of. The books will be reconciled perfectly. There will be perfect, absolute justice. So for those of you who have suffered, right? You've been mistreated. You have been harmed at the hands of injustice. This is something you are supposed to cling to. Right? I hope there will be some justice for you here. That's a good thing. We should pursue justice here when we can get it. But even if you don't, even if you get no justice here, there will be justice. God has not forgotten. He has seen. And he will not forget you. We are meant to cling to that when we suffer here. Right? We are meant to rejoice in the fact that God will set all things to right in a little while. In a little while, he will do this. No one is getting away with anything. No matter how much they seem to flourish and prosper in the moment, it may seem like everything they touch turns to gold. It's an illusion. It's like dust in the wind. And when Christ comes... 
we will see things as they truly are. And that justice will be meted out. And for us, church, safe in Christ when that wrath falls, it won't touch us. We are actually outside of it now. So we can rejoice in the justice of God because we have been made just. Despite all our failings, our weaknesses, all the injustices, we are clothed in Christ. So the justice that once held terror and fear for us is now something we will rejoice in and we will celebrate to see the glory of a perfect, just God execute things perfectly. It'll be beautiful to us. We will rejoice in seeing his wisdom and his righteousness. Judgment day for Christians is not a fearful thing. There's literally nothing to fear. It is great. It will be our vindication. It will be the fact that we will see everybody, see God for who he truly is. It will be amazing. It is something we look forward to. Where we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? We want this. We want injustice to end, right? We want to be free of all this stuff. But for now, we're not because God is still redeeming people, right? And this is what brings us back to our mission as a church. We are the embassy of the kingdom of heaven to proclaim the forgiveness of sin to sinners. Until God comes in that judgment, that is our job. So we can want Human justice for those who do wrong. That's not bad. That's a good thing. It's good when people harm other people that they receive justice. But our deepest impulse as Christians should be, yes, I want them to have human justice, but I want them spared from ultimate justice because of Christ. And I remember thinking about this even when I was at war. Right? I'm over there at war fighting people, trying to take lives to protect other lives, and simultaneously praying for the people that I am fighting that somehow God would bring the gospel to them and that they would turn from their rebellions against him and run to Christ for their salvation. Like, that is what we live in, right? Like, that is this weird time and place that we are. This is what we are as a church. We love justice. We should want justice to happen. We should live justly, right? We should live with righteousness towards one another to everybody that we encounter. But we should love mercy. We should love mercy mercy and grace. That should thrill our hearts far more than justice. That should be the deepest driving thing that motivates us in the way that we understand living the Christian life here. It is mercy and grace. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I think that very much orients us to what our life here in an unjust world looks like. Right? We should do justice. Right? We should relate to one another in integrity. We should defend those who are oppressed. Right? These are good things to do. They are good things to do, and we should be about that as Christians. God loves justice, so we should as well. We are to reflect him. We should rejoice when we see justice done, and we should grieve when we see injustice we should grieve when we see injustice even when we do it. Because we do. And so we should do justice, but we should love mercy. We should love mercy. We are the mercy people. We are the grace people at our hearts. We don't exist apart from that. Like this is the thing that forms us and makes us. Right? Showing mercy to people personally through kindness, through forgiveness. Think about us relating to each other as a family. We are going to sin against each other. 
I've already sinned against you guys. I know I have, right? We are going to do that. For us to operate as a family, we have to love mercy, right? We have to know that we are forgiven people. And so we love the opportunities that we have to forgive the injustice that's done to us in the body. Otherwise, we won't, it won't work. We'll, we'll crumble. We'll divide. We won't be what God has called us to be as a church, right? When we see other people's injustice, in the church, outside of the church, wherever it is, it's right for us to want justice, but we ultimately want them to find what we have found. No matter how despicable what they have done is, no matter how much damage they've done, we should long for mercy and grace because they are not less deserving than we are. And we need to remember that knowing justice will ultimately come allows us, that's what allows us to pursue mercy now, right? That allows us to throw ourselves into mercy and grace because we know that the justice is coming. God will not fail, right? It's not our job to hold everyone to account. That's God's job. He will do it, right? So we get to be the emissaries of mercy and grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we can do that because the justice is assured because of what we know is to come. And lastly, to walk humbly. This is essential to doing the other two, right? We have to understand who we are. We are not the righteous, right? We are not the just. We are the unjust. We are the wicked who have been delivered, not because of anything better in us, but by the sheer mercy and grace with God. We walk with God, not as people who deserve it. We don't deserve that. And there's nothing we can do to deserve that. It is a sheer gift, our life should be animated by just the wonder that we have received what we have received. Every second of our life as a Christian is a miracle of grace that somebody like me gets to walk with God, gets to be in a relationship with a holy God, and he loves me and he's for me. All right, this is the stuff, guys, that allows us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven while we live in the kingdom of this world. All right, and communion is this incredible means of grace that points us to these realities, right? One of the things that God uses is to nourish us and ground us in this as we go back out into the world. And so we are going to sing and receive the elements now. This is a meal for those who are united to Christ, right? And that is important. Um, if you are not in Christ, if your faith and trust is not in him, this meal is not for you. And this is not because we want to withhold good from you. Right? We do not want to confuse you. If you are not in Christ, much of what I said, the reverse is true for you. Right? That coming day of judgment is not something you should look forward to. You should dread it. And you should not partake of this supper because this supper represents what we will get to do with Christ on the other side of that judgment and that is not for you yet. So if you are in that place, this is a deadly serious thing for you. So don't eat of this and confuse yourself and make you allow it to make you think you are okay apart from Christ. But for those of us who are in the family, this is for us, right? So as we sing, go and receive the elements at the tables at the back. Purple's grape juice. Clear is wine. Bread's on the bottom, so just take one cup. Uh, we're going to sing, and then I'll get up and walk you guys through communion, and, and we'll get out of here from there. So please stand and let's worship this great God of ours.